1 Peter 1.22 through 2.3. Um, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God, the word of the Lord, remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you guys pray with me? Um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to gather in your name, uh, to worship the risen Jesus, uh, and to um, just celebrate the gospel in spirit. We're grateful for this place. Uh, we're grateful um, just for our, our brothers and, and sisters around us and our guests. Uh, and uh, we just pray, Lord, that you would have your way uh, with our minds and with our hearts, that you would just engage us with the power of your word uh, in a way that molds us more and more into the image of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we are... Um, we're continuing now in, in, our, in our series uh, through the great book of 1 Peter uh, that we're calling Resilient Hope in a Restless World. Resilient Hope in a Restless World. The big idea is that Peter, the apostle, uh, he's now reaching retirement age. He's older in age. He's, been a, he's a veteran pastor. He's been pastoring churches and pastoring pastors for many, many years. And he's writing now to a group of Christians who are dispersed throughout the ancient Near East to encourage them in their faith. Uh, because, you know, following Jesus, becoming a disciple of him does not automatically make life easier, does it? And oftentimes, uh, even as Christians who have an eternal hope, our experience of life in the here and now can often feel hopeless can make us feel restless. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them uh, to find resilient hope through Christ in a restless world. And looking over, uh, uh, and looking over uh, our, our text that we're going in this, this morning, it made, me, it made me think of uh, one of my favorite things uh, about having small kids. Uh, and that's that kids are really gullible, right? Uh, it's really easy to fool a small kid. Like one of my one of my favorite bits to do uh, with with my kids right now uh, is I just point to the ceiling and I'm like, "Whoa, look! How did that balloon get there?" Right? Uh, and as soon as they look up. Uh, I just go for their tickle spot on their neck, and they're like, ah, you got me again, right? Uh, and the game is that sometimes I'll say some of the most ridiculous and ludicrous things to make them feel even more silly, right? Like, what is that man doing walking in the corner of the room? And then when they look up, uh, I go for their neck, and it's just super funny the more ridiculous the claim, claim gets. You see, kids are super gullible, and that's part of what makes them adorable. But if my kids, who uh, are ranged from the age of like almost two to six, 
if they're like 15 years old and falling for those same pranks, like it's a little less adorable, right? It starts to lose its cuteness factor. And if they're like 30 years old falling for the same, like what's that guy doing walking on the ceiling bit, then that's just embarrassing, right? And why is that? It's because kids, when they're little, they'll believe anything. But adults, the more mature that you get, like you, there's a point where it's like, okay, you should know better. The more mature you are, the less you should fall for false claims like that. The Apostle Paul, uh, in another book, he says that a lot of Christians are maybe a little too gullible. To the church in Ephesus, he says, you guys are like children blown about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, if the preacher's got a best-selling book, or if he's wearing these fancy preacher sneakers, or if the music woos the heart and draws the masses, then, then whatever's being said has got to be true. But that is just not the case. And so Paul appeals for them to be mature so that they won't be so gullible. The goal is that as believers, um, we, we, we don't just stay where we were at in our spiritual maturity at conversion. The goal is to grow up in the faith. It's to be maturing in the faith the older that you get. And so look, here's the first point I want us to sort of unpack uh, in our passage this morning is this fact that, that we need to be as maturing Christians growing up in the truth. Point number one. To grow up in the truth. We see this in our first couple verses, beginning in verse 22, where Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, Peter's writing here, remember, to a people who are feeling restless, a people who are suffering from restlessness in a fallen world. How many of us can relate to that, right? This feelings of restlessness in a fallen world. The temptation when we're feeling restless is to become super self-focused, right? To where we look at things through uh, me-colored lenses and forget other people and we start to lose sight of God's heart and God's purposes and we're just so consumed with self. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that the mark of spiritual maturity is that you're, 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 you're not so much uh, consumed by self, but you're consumed more with truth. He says, be purified in the soul by obedience to the truth. So it's not just, it's this idea that it's not just our laundry that needs to be cleaned. It's not just our cars that need cleaning. Like our souls need cleaning too. You see, it's having been purified in the what? In the soul. Now, what does that mean? What he's referring to is, you know, when, when you want to live for something bigger than yourself, when you want to give yourself over to God's purposes, uh, for you and his mission through the church, then you need a purified soul. You need to clear the floor of your heart first. All right, so my kids, they're really into Legos these days, right? Uh, and not like, 
not like the big Duplo Legos, like the, the real, like the, the Legos that we all grew up on, right? The little, small, intricate, really detailed Legos. They're into those these days. And so when they bring out the Lego set with all of its tiny little pieces, right? Like you, you need to know uh, where each piece fits into, into the next piece, right? And so when they bring out the big Lego project for us to work on, the first thing we have to do is we gotta clear the table, right? We gotta clear the table of all other toys, of all other trinkets. We need to clear the table so that there's room to build on and so that we can stay focused on the, on the task at hand. And so what he's saying here is foundational. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You see, that's how you clear the floor of your heart is by obedience to the truth. He's not saying that you make yourself righteous before God by obeying the truth. That would be what's called like a works righteousness religion. What he's talking about is that the process that God uses, when the gospel of grace so transforms us and begins to move us more and more toward obedience, more so that we begin uh, just all the more walking in the ways of Jesus. That's what it means to purify your souls by your obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth is about growing in the gospel. In other words, we could say it's about growing in your awareness of your own sin. Growing in conviction over that sin. Growing in a lifestyle that's marked by repentance, turning from sin and to God through grace. And so when you leave behind, when you believe behind your old ways and begin to walk in this new way, you are, in a sense, clearing the table of your heart to give, it to, to give your heart to God's mission and purposes. Now, there's more to be said here about growing in the truth. I want you to, to keep reading with me. Again, in verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now focus here on verse 23. Since you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but by imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, he's saying, don't you understand that the seed of the gospel has been planted inside your heart? The seed of the gospel. Like if you are a disciple of Jesus, know that you are not swept up into something that is, not, that, that is, that is only temporary. You are swept up in something that's inter- eternal, something that's imperishable. You are swept up in the eternal seed of the gospel, the eternal mission of God the eternal purposes of God through his church. Your new life in Christ is one that will never fade and will always endure. It's imperishable. That is a word of comfort to a restless soul. In verse 24, he continues, and he actually quotes uh, what to them would be a, a famous and well-known passage from Isaiah 40. He says in verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass it withers, the flower it falls, but the word of the Lord remains how long? Forever. It remains forever. 
He's saying, look, the word of God, the word of God, which has transformed your life, the word of God, which you used to hate, but you now love as a Christian, that word of God is not like grass or flowers. The plants of the field, like they might flourish and thrive for a moment. They might bring joy and happiness for a moment. But there comes a day when they're eventually gone. They wither. They're short-lived. And that the joy that they brought, the happiness they once brought, will also be gone. But the word of God, Peter says, is not like that. The life and joy that the word of God creates lasts forever because it is by its nature a life-giving eternal, imperishable word. Shakespeare talked about how man's glory is like ripples in the water. It might make a big splash at first, and the ripples might be high uh, as, as, as they start to spread out, but the larger and larger they get, uh, the, the quicker they fade. Like how the giants of one generation are often forgotten by the next. But the word of God is not like that. He says, look, men and the, thing of, the things of men, they're like grass, they're like flowers, they will eventually fade away. But God's word never fades. And he tells us exactly what he's referring to with this phrase, the word of God. Here's what he refers to as the word of God. He says it in the last part of verse 25. He says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that was preached to you, that is the word that he's talking about. And so if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the word of God that was preached to you, the word of God that saved you, the word of God that you're receiving right now as I speak, that is the imperishable seed. That is the living and abiding word of God through which you were born again. What does that tell us? It tells us that the spiritually mature person is somebody who grows in this truth. Somebody who presses further into this gospel. Growing, as we said earlier, in their awareness of sin and the celebration of grace. Now, why does Peter focus so much on this growing in truth? What is so significant about growing in truth? Why does that matter? It's because a life that is built on the truth of God is a life that also spills out with the love of God. And what's the greatest commandment, Jesus said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the point. That is the point of being built up in truth. That is the point of abiding in truth. That is the point of claiming the truth as imperishable, as life-giving. You see, the central point of this short passage, I don't want you to miss this, in these few verses, the very central point is a call to display God's glory through love. Actually, the only command in these verses that we've read so far is right there in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, here's the command, love one another, earnestly from a pure 
heart. That's our second point. The mature Christian doesn't just grow up in the truth, but the mature Christian is someone who also grows up in love. The mature Christian grows up in love. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I want you to recognize in this point and in those verses, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have the very high and noble calling of representing Christ to a broken world, of providing rest to souls in a restless world. That means that your life ought to display him, ought to display God through the way that you love people around you. And so to someone who doesn't know Jesus, perhaps you are the touch of his hand. You're the look on his face. You might be the nearness of his presence to them. You are sent in the spirit to be the incarnation of God's truth, his goodness, his beauty, his patience, forgiveness, and mercy. To steal a phrase from Paul Tripp, you are an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. You are called to love. You're called to love not just for the sake of love, but for the sake of the God of love, to spread the glory of his name. You see, we're called to be growing in love. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, have you accepted that as your mission and calling? Have you accepted that part of your mission and calling in this world is to be growing in love? Now, Peter is really helpful for us here. He leaves a trail of qualifying words in in these two verses, 22 and 23. He leaves a trail of qualifying words to sort of break down what this Christ-like love looks like for us. You'll see it up on the screen and they'll be underlined. The first word, the first qualifying word for love is that, that God is calling us to grow into a sincere love. A sincere love. Now, what does he mean by that? A sincere love is an authentic love. It's born out of a heart that has already been loved perfectly. That's what we mean by sincere love. You see, only the Christian can say, not only am I fully known, but I'm fully loved. The gospel tells us that in Christ, God fully knows us and fully loves us. He knows the best things about us, but he knows the darkest things too, the most secret things that we even hide from ourselves, that we don't even know about ourselves. He fully knows us and yet he fully loves us. Only the Christian can also say, I am being loved right now and I will be forever loved. And because I am so grateful to God, I will live a life of worship and praise and hope that the love I received starts to rub off on the people that God has sovereignly placed in my path around me. You see, to have a sincere love means that it's not for show. It's not a duty. You don't do it begrudgingly but it flows naturally from sincerity of heart because you're just overwhelmed with the love that you received first. The second qualifier, Peter says, is that this needs to be a brotherly love. A brotherly love. 
That means that this is a familial type of love. It's a love that breaks down barriers, that unites adversaries. It's not, it's not tribal, right? It's not a kind of love that looks down on others, so it's not like a, a love of pity, right? Like, oh, I pity those people. That's why, why I love them. No, it's a standing in arms alongside someone that recognizes we share an identity in a sense. We share an identity because we're both sinners in need of grace. We share an identity because you, I recognize that I'm just as needy, I'm just as broken, I'm just as imperfect as you are. Consider this one, is your Christianity marked by an attitude that tells others, I am like just like you in the fact that I haven't arrived either. I'm also in process. I'm also a beggar of grace. Does your, the posture of your heart sort of display, exude that humility and that type of brotherly love? Or do you see yourself as maybe better than others, as further along than others? And the way that you talk about them, the way that you treat them sort of reflects that. Man, I don't want that to be true of us. Look at the third qualifier here. He says that, that we need to love earnestly. It's an earnest love. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be earnest? It means you're zealous. It's a motivated love. It's a love that takes initiative, where you actually actively are looking for people to love. You look for spaces around you to be on mission. Your eyes and your ears and your heart are open to the Spirit's leading. You're not waiting for missional opportunities to fall into your lap. You're not waiting for a special ministry to start up at the church that you can sign up for. No, you're just, you're just engaged in that. You, you, you engage in that on, on your own. The fourth point... Uh, the fourth one is a pure heart. Now, what does he mean by uh, a pure a pure heart? That means it's entirely clean. You have no ulterior motives, right? Like you're not. Uh, it's it's not that you you uh, are are loving somebody uh, in order to get something uh, in return. Uh, Peter says that love needs to be a pure love. It's not, it's not a love with mixed motives. You're not loving others in order to get something back. You're not saying, look, I'll love you only if you'll notice me and like me more because of it, right? You're not saying, I'll love you only if you'll notice and then want to do something nice for me when I need it. A pure love doesn't have those secret motives. Pure love is loving someone simply to be part of God's good work in their life. And by the way, I don't want you to miss the fact. I don't want you, um, no, just, this kind of brings us really to this moment, right? Like, I don't want you to miss the fact that there is a vibrant and organic relationship here between truth and love. All right? Don't, don't miss that point in this text, that there is a vibrant, organic relationship between two, truth and love. Because look, some of us, some of us think that all God cares about is truth. And so you take pride in offending others with the truths of your Christianity. 
Like, hey, if people are offended by my message, it's just because I'm being faithful, right? And look, that might be true, but you might just also be a jerk, right? You might also be unsanctified in that area. Some of us, on the other hand, we think that all all God cares about is love. And so you'll accept anyone just as they are and never pray for or invest in their growth. You'll avoid hard conversations because you don't want to offend them. And if you never offend anyone, then the chances are you're either lacking courage in your demeanor or you're lacking consistency in your message. Let's be real about something. These are extremely divisive times, right? That just compounds to the restlessness of the year 2020. In the year 2020, in the great U.S. of A., you cannot speak your truth in love. You have to do it dogmatically, right? Like that's what everywhere you see it on Facebook, you see it on the media, you see it up in debates. Like you cannot speak what you believe to be truth lovingly. You have to do it dogmatically. That's what we're taught. That's what we're modeled that you have to shame others who don't subscribe to your version of the truth. Man, that's, that's just real talk in the moment, right? The election night this week, I hope we can all agree, regardless of your political persuasion, that, that was a disaster. That was an embarrassment. And look, so, some of us, we have a ten- tendency to be such proud people. Like if we're truth-only people or if we're love-only people, we think that, that our side is, is the side of spiritual maturity and that everyone else is immature. So, so we think if we talk truth the loudest, if we scream it and proclaim it the loudest, then we're the most mature. And everyone else needs to get where we're at. Or we might think, look, if we love, if we, if we love people the most, if we're loved and embraced by the world, then we're the most mature. But listen, both of those both of those are actually spiritually immature. You can't have truth without a posture and demeanor of love. You can't have love and compassion without the, the, the conviction, the ground of conviction and truth. I love the way that Keller puts this, Tim Keller. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. But God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by, by, by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us, to see the truth about ourselves and repent, and the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. I love that. So it leads us into our concluding point. How do we grow in both truth and love? How do we do that? How do we grow in truth and in love? 
We see that, that this in the beginning of verse or, or chapter two, verses one through three. Peter says, So then put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here's how you grow in truth and love. He's saying there's something you need to put off and there's something else that you need to put on. What do you need to put off? He gives it right there in verse one. He says malice, which is when you celebrate the losses of others. And when you, when you celebrate someone's losses and you, and you hate their wins, right? That's malice, where, where you're not looking out for their good, but you're, really, you're only concerned about your own good. Deceit, that's what we talked about earlier, having ulterior motives in your, in your relationships with others. Hypocrisy, that's maybe, maybe when you say and act one way when you're saying something to someone to, your, to their face, but, uh, but behind closed doors, you're doing something else, right? You're, you're more like a Judas than a Peter. Envy, that's when you're, that's when you're jealous, uh, of, of someone else, your, your posture towards them is marked with jealousy and slander. That's when you make yourself look, or you want to feel good and want to make yourself look good by making someone else look and sound bad. But these five things are the enemies of truth and of love, of conviction and compassion. And so Peter says, you got to rid yourself of them. You got to slay them. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But then nourish yourself with the scriptures. That's what you put on. You put on the gospel. Nourish yourself with the scriptures. We see that in verse 2 when he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. You see, many times in the scriptures, the Bible is described, the word of God is described as spiritual milk. To find nourishment in the scriptures means that you, you feed on it. You sip on it. You spend time in it. You believe in it. You trust it. You take it in. And so to, and so to, to, to crave and to, and to consume spiritual milk means that you digest, that you get it, first of all, in a digestible st state. So you take it in small chunks to study it. You study the Bible in small chunks. You study the gospel. You ruminate on it in small chunks. To be nourished by it, you also need to taste it. You also need to bring it to your mouth and, and, and taste it. Let it hit your palate. That's when the truth of God is, goes, goes from your mind down into your heart, where it begins to change the palate of your heart, where it begins to actually melt your heart, soften your heart. And then part of what it means to consume the pure spiritual milk also means that you don't just taste it, but you digest it. That means with the word of God, you, you pray over it, you seek to obey it to where it becomes a part of who you are. When you read God's word, when you meditate upon the gospel, you're asking yourself, hey, if I take this truth seriously, what difference will it make in my life? If I really believe this thing that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written, that is being illuminated to my eyes, the eyes of my heart right now, if I really consider this true, what difference will that make in my life? Look, 
I know that Bible reading is a challenge. I know that it's a challenge, but I want you to consider what are you being nourished by if it's not the Holy Word of God? What are you being nourished by if it's not the Holy Word of God? Because the, the, the fact is that we are constantly being nourished and formed and shaped by the things around us. You might be like, I, I try to study the Bible, I try to make time for the Word, but it's just, it's hard, right? I feel like it just doesn't, doesn't really change me or impact me the way that it once did. Man, I want you to consider that sometimes... Sometimes we're being constantly formed by other things. And those other things are changing the palates of our hearts. And sometimes it takes time to develop a new palate, right? Like maybe you start drinking black coffee for the first time, right? Maybe you're trying like uh, a certain kind of uh, like beer or dessert or something like for the first time and 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 you know that a lot of times when in your first encounter with these things like you got to develop a palate for this for them to be able to really appreciate it sometimes when your diet has been so bad just because you start eating healthy doesn't mean you get healthy right away all right sometimes it takes time to get healthy Sometimes it takes time. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for the Word of God to supernaturally work right away um, and to, to, to where, we, where we, we, feel, we do feel that way and we feel our soul revive. That's absolutely possible, and that does happen. But that's not normative. It takes time. It takes investment to redevelop our palate and to get healthy. You can't just rely on a couple hours with God's people on a Sunday to form you for a life of godliness. I love the way that um, Brett McCracken articulated this in a recent um, in a recent article that he wrote. Uh, Brett's a friend of ours, and he's a he's a pastor helping plant a new church in Santa Ana um, this year. But Brett says uh, the digital age, and more broadly, our secular age has greatly expanded the horizon of ideas shaping Christians. The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occupy two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours of their week. That's a lot of hours. That's more than twice a full-time job. We're constantly being formed and shaped and nourished by things other than God's true and holy word. And so that's why Peter implores in verse 2, he says, like newborn infants long for that pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's not saying that by doing this, you'll get saved, but he's talking about the goal of salvation, which is spiritual maturity. You'll grow up into spiritual maturity, which is the goal of salvation. In verse three, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, last verse, do you see where it all comes from? This all comes from the goodness of our God. The message of his grace. It all comes from the imperishable word that is the gospel. Have you tasted and have you seen 
that the Lord is good. That you are not saved by your good deeds, but by what Jesus did for you on the cross in your place and for your sins. And that the moment you believe, the moment you believe in the gospel, God takes away your sin and he adopts you into his family. He takes you, Jesus takes you as a brother in arms to fight by your side to the very end and to secure your space at the Father's table in all eternity. To be clear, when you came to saving faith, you were already fully saved. You can't grow in being more saved now than you were yesterday if you're in Christ. But you can grow in your experience of that goodness. You can grow in your love for that grace. So do you long... Do you long to know God and love and obey him so well that you have a taste of his goodness? Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the beauty in his goodness? We grow in truth and we grow in love, not to gain God's goodness towards us, but because we have already tasted that he is good. That's why Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.